Accessing library computer data. Level 9 authorization required. Command codes verified. Welcome to Moms Going Boldly, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Moms Going Boldly is two moms who love Star Trek and who also happen to have children on the autism spectrum. We talk about the new Star Trek Discovery TV series, as well as any autism issues we see along the way. I am your host, Elizabeth, and with me is my co-host, Vicki. Hi, I'm Vicki. We are Moms Going Boldly. The following episode was recorded in 2019, but due to circumstances beyond our control, was never published. Some of the items we may have been speculating about or things that we hoped might happen in the future may have already, at this point, been proven or disproven or have actually come to fruition. Welcome back to Moms Going Boldly. Today we are talking about the Star Trek Discovery Season 2 episode, Through the Valley of Shadows. So Vicki, what did you think of this episode? It was a really good episode and it was sad. Okay. What made it sad for you? I was sad. Captain Pike finding out his future. Yeah. I was upset that they did that to him. I also, and we're kind of jumping ahead here, but I also found it sad what happened to Laurel and Vox Child. Just as a parent, um, and again, we're going to leap ahead here a little bit, that, you know, Captain Pike visits the monastery at Borath and discovers that Laurel and Vox Child is an adult now because of these time crystals, because he was his life growth was accelerated. I think it's sad that they lost the chance to be with their child as their child grew up. They missed out their child's growing up. You're right. It was sad. The whole episode was sad. You know, they were so excited that I got to see him and talk to him. You know, even when uh, Tyler was talking about his son and he said, I wanted to raise him. The whole episode was heartbreaking. So let's talk about the episode in a little bit more detail. There are two main storylines in this episode. The One of them, and I don't even know what I would call the A, a storyline and the B storyline, because they gave pretty much equal time to both of them. But one storyline is Spock and Michael Burnham chasing after disappearing Section 31 ships to see if that has anything to do with the control AI evilness. And the other storyline is Pike and taking the discovery to the Klingon monastery world of Boreth, where the time crystals are housed, and essentially going on a quest to get the time crystals. Um, and of course, people will remember that Boreth was in a Star Trek Next Generation episode with Worf, where a clone of Kalos is created by the monks at the monastery, and then there's a power struggle because Kalos was the emperor, and he said he was coming back. Some Klingons believe it, and some Klingons don't. And so, you know, it starts to devolve into a civil war over faith, but then gets resolved at the end, um, I thought, quite well. And that's that Next Generation episode. I can't remember the name of it. Oh, it was Rightful Heir. That's the name of that episode. I remember that. Yeah. I wouldn't remember the name, but I do remember the episode. So 
this world, Boreth, is where Laurel and Vok placed their child after Laurel declared her enemies had killed her child and that Ash Tyler was actually a Federation spy and he was killed too. Ash deposited their child in secrecy on Boreth and his name was Son of None. And so when Discovery decides to go to Boreth to see if they can get the time crystals, they contact Laurel. Ash helps them with that. She comes on board the ship. There's a bittersweet meeting between the two of them. And she does what she can to help Pike with his quest for the time crystal. And Tyler confesses to Burnham that he had this child with her, or Vok did. It's it very confusing. And then they talk about their child. And, and actually, I, I really enjoyed the scenes between Laurel and Vok Tyler. Tyler Vok. What did we decide to call him? Vokler. And I thought the scenes with Pike were really good, too, with Laurel and Pike. The other scenes that took place in this episode, and I actually found myself drifting between really enjoying the storyline related to the time crystals and really being unhappy with other parts of it that felt very soap opera, drama, drama, drama. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we have this whole uh, Stamets Culber thing that is still going oh on. <laughs> you know what? That was exactly my thought when he got up to leave and he turned around to look at Culber talking to people at the table. It, it's almost like he turned to the camera somehow. Right. And I was like, oh my God, this is a soap opera. Right. And you're waiting for next on Days of Our Lives yeah. on Discovery. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, I was. Fans of the hourglass. Yes, exactly. I was oh. struggling with that. And there was this moment between Burnham and Tyler, which was getting a little soap opery too. And there was this yeah. moment between Burnham and Spock that was getting a little. So I'm saying, and the funny thing is because I have the uh, subscription to CBS that includes the commercials. And so the irony was, oh. is that every time they broke for commercial, it was like commercials for their soap operas. <laughs> and I was like, is this the theme for tonight? Just soap opera, soap opera, soap opera. So when Stamets looked into the camera and pouted, was that a commercial break? I don't have the commercials. I don't know if there was a commercial break right after that, but I know that I was like, oh my God, make it go away. <laughs> so I will say this, what could have been sloppy soap opery moment in sick bay with Jet Reno was not. That was oh, awesome. That was good. I like that. Yeah. And I think it helps because it's done with a sense of humor as opposed to the look at the camera in despair thing that Stamets was doing. I feel so bad for that character. They're just ruining his whole character. Even when Reno came in to talk to him in the lunchroom, she said, aren't you over that? It's been weeks. Yeah. And we're feeling the same way. We're certainly over it. <laughs> Meanwhile, so Spock and Burnham head off in a shuttlecraft toward the last known location of a Section 31 ship that vanished from sensors to try to figure out if it's something they should worry about or whether it was just something funky going on. And they discover a derelict ship with bodies floating in space. It's quite grim. I know. And they find one that has barely any life signs and they beat it aboard. And it's one of her former colleagues from the Shenzhou. Now, do you remember this guy from the Mirror Universe? I 
don't. He's not the one she keeps killing in every movie. Right? Yes, yes, I think he no, is. Kind of, well, there was no way. He's actually dead in our Oh, okay, so it's not the same guy. Remember? He's the one who flew out of the bay or whatever. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you're and right. Then she killed him in the second universe. She killed him in the second universe. So you're right. I thought it was the same guy, and I was thinking, this is a bad guy. This is bad news. This so. <laughs> We knew in our little, you know, family that this guy was bad news from the very beginning. Why didn't they know? I know, no kidding. If they know that the AI control can now take a body, why didn't they assume that it could take anybody? I guess Spock did say that his tricorder readings didn't pick it up or something. Yeah, but still, I'd be a little suspicious. The one person who managed to get himself into a suit. Yeah. But my son picked it up immediately. My son was like, he's bad. He's totally bad. Watch it. So anyway, they go back to the ship. They try to restart the ship to see if they can contain control, the AI. And they separate, which is like a violation of the first law of Scooby-Doo. You never separate in a derelict old ship that's haunted by dead bodies. <laughs> so Spot goes up someplace to restart the computer and create a little hidey hole for the AI to go into and to be trapped there. Michael Burnham and... Her former crewmate, who's now actually Control, go into another part of the ship to restart the computer. He attacks her. She figures out it's him before he attacks her. And I forget what he said. Do you remember what he said? That He said something. I can't that remember it, either. Something about how Section 31 created a program. Oh, it was that Control was a really excellent program and it just needed to be given more latitude or something like that. Right, but whatever he said right before that is what gave her the idea. Yeah. He was singing the praises of some, he didn't say control, but later he did, and then she was positive. Right. Can't remember exactly what he said. There's this big fight, and I want to say I do love the fact that in this series, the women get hit and hit. You know, you never used to see that in any other series, right? In the original series, the women were always hiding behind the guy with the phaser. And in The Next Generation, Tasha Yar did some hitting and kicking, but she was only there for a year. And then after that, you didn't see much hitting and kicking either of the women or by the women. And for a long time, the women weren't even allowed to fire phasers. Did you, did you ever notice that? No, I didn't. Yeah, you don't I see... Pay attention now. You don't see Deanna or Dr. Crusher actually firing a phaser until... Like, sixth or seventh season. Yeah, I guess I just assumed because it was the doctor and the counselor and they weren't really trained for that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, yeah, you're right. You start to see it a little bit more in Deep Space Nine and you get to see it a little bit more in Voyager, but you don't see the full-on fisticuffs that you're seeing now. And I actually really like that. You know, I think you know that I'm writing a novel. I've got a character in my novel who is just a not-a-nice-female character. And in one chapter, a guy hits her. <laughs> Now, there's good reason for it, and it's part of this diversionary tactic and all this stuff. But I feel more comfortable doing that because I think we've reached a point in our society where we recognize that women can hit too. And if women are given the opportunity to learn self-defense, etc., it makes sense. And I'm not saying that men should run around and hit women because most women have never given an opportunity to learn self-defense and know how to fight in a safe way. But Michael Burnham does. And so it's good to see that she actually gets to use those skills. Yeah. If that makes any sense. So she gets into a big fight. Meanwhile, Spock has figured it out, too. He has figured out that this crewmate is not actually a person. And so he's trying to save Michael Burnham. And there's this big showdown. All the AI little nanobot things leave 
the crewmen and are coming after Michael Burnham like tendrils on a vine, just, you know, screaming across the floor trying to get to her, etc. And that was actually kind of wonderfully creepy. I enjoyed the sense of um, tension that came with that scene because it felt real. And she's just shooting her phasers, two-fisting her phasers. That was cool, too. Very Clint Eastwood with both phasers in both hands. <laughs> so then Spock finally saves her, and she's grateful, and it's good. But now we know, because this Control said that this whole thing was set up to entice her to the ship, because Control wants her and wants to control her, wants to turn her into one of its human-bodied replica things. I wonder why. I think that's a good question. Spock says it's because it knows that she's a question mark that could interfere with its plans. And I remember said that, but then why is she a question mark when nobody else is? I, I think that's a really good question. So does it have to do with her mom? It's the only thing I could think of. Yeah. Because she's adamant about finding her mom and continuing her mother's works. And one way to stop this in its tracks would be, like we talked about before, if they go back in time and actually allow her parents to die, then control can't get to where it is now. Because everything that has happened now in this particular timeline has been because of the Red Angel. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. So we go back to Boreth, and Captain Pike has been warned that he's going to have to go through some kind of ordeal in order to attain a time crystal. And the ordeal is apparently quite significant, very frightening life-changing, and most people don't succeed. He meets what essentially looks like the head monk, who identifies himself as Tanavik. Once he convinces Tanavik that he wants the opportunity to try to go through the ordeal, Tanavik tells him that he used to be called Son of None, and identifies himself as Laurel and Vok's child, who has undergone some kind of accelerated growth because of the time crystals which is a very interesting plot twist. But unfortunately, it doesn't support your albino theory. No, but it might. You never know. <laughs> you never know, right. We're holding out hope for the albino theory. This might be common knowledge. Like I say, I don't read anything. Yeah. You say you see them in your newsfeed. I even have all that blast in my newsfeed. If I see anything, it's on Twitter, and I don't read it. I usually just, you know, see the headline. Right. But... When I watch TV, this is why I have to watch everything twice. I'm continuously looking up, who's this? I recognize <laughs> this. I do that through the whole thing because it drives me crazy if I recognize And his face, what I could see of it, looked a little bit familiar. Plus, I wanted to look up the name to see if I was supposed to know that for some reason. I thought maybe the name was supposed to mean something, but I didn't see anything, although I got distracted by finding out who was playing him. <laughs> Maybe if I searched farther, I would have figured out the name. Right. But Kenneth Mitchell is playing that character. And we saw him previously in the first season. He played Cole in the first season. I'm wondering if they just called him because he can play Klingon, or (laughs) if that means something, if that's not really their son. Oh, interesting. That's definitely something to think about. Like I said in the first season, I couldn't understand why they would cast him. Because he's relatively well-known and not show his face for the whole season and then kill him off. I remember talking to you about it and we were trying to figure out if there was any way he could have lived through that explosion and we decided no. Yeah. But now to bring him back to play a different character? Interesting. So Tanovic agrees to allow Captain Pike to go through the ordeal to get a time stone. And the ordeal is essentially to touch a time stone which then shows you your future. 
And then if you take that time stone away, your future is locked in place. And what Captain Pike saw was the terrible injury that he was destined to suffer that you see him in the wheelchair for in the episode, The Menagerie. So in The Menagerie, which took the pilot episode, which NBC refused to run because they said it was too cerebral, and made it part of a two-parter episode called The Menagerie, where you're essentially doing a flashback with the cage footage. And in that episode, Captain Pike was in a wheelchair after suffering terrible damage from, what was it, Delta radiation or something? Trying to save cadets in an accident, in a training accident. And so Pike sees this future after he touches the time crystal. And of course, he's horrified by it. Who wouldn't be? What did you think of that scene when they, when they revealed that? I think he did a good job acting. Yeah. A really good job. I was just so sad that they let him see but then it also was an incredible moment because he accepted that fate in order to save all sentient life in the universe. And it was very sad and it was horrifying. And, you know, the weight of that knowledge being pressed down upon him. And then he, you know, lay back gasping in realization and said, I'm a Starfleet officer. I believe in honor and truth and love. And he went and accepted that fate. You know, he took the, the time crystal and sealed his fate. It was very powerful. It was. I'm a big fan of Christopher Pike. Yes, and I love his character. I suppose his whole um, demeanor is going to be different from here on in. Probably. And then also, it kind of helps to tie in the demeanor of the Pike we saw in the menagerie. That man was in despair. I, I don't know. I thought they did a great job with that. Yeah. So that was where we ended up in the episode. Did I miss anything? Um, at the end? Yes. Where we ended was that the Section 31 ships all arrived. Burnham said the only way we're going to stop the database from the sphere getting into the hands of the control AI is to destroy Discovery. And so they left us on a cliffhanger, which I'm interested in seeing where they take it. Interestingly enough, they also talk about how they want to use the time crystal and... Burnham said something about how it required a supernova to power the one her mom had used. Would the explosion of an antimatter warp drive provide the equivalent energy? Oh, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I'm yeah, probably. Just thinking. I, I don't know. But that's an interesting juxtaposition of, of information in a very short period of time right at the end of that episode. We'll have to see. Hmm. Very interesting. So uh, anything else? Did I miss anything else? You know, it was interesting when he came back and told Tyler and Lorel that he got the crystal and he met their son. Yes. She seemed genuinely concerned with what he had to trade or give. Yes, she did. And I think from a Klingon perspective, who were, if you kind of assume that they're constantly evaluating the combat skills of whomever they're dealing with to know that this human being was able to achieve what so many Klingons had not been able to achieve. You know that she has to be thinking about that just through a Klingon perspective. What's his name? Timekeeper. Tanavik? Yeah. Yeah. He also said, I honor you. Yes. So apparently this is a very big deal. It's, I mean, we thought it was going in. Yeah, I'm able to remember his name because um, I think you know that I see words and, co- and numbers and colors. Tanavik's got some great colors going. It's got blues and like a ma- dark magenta and some greens and yellows. <laughs> so I can see it in my head. I'm quite sure I'll never remember it. I'll, <laughs> I'll ask you every episode, what was his name? <laughs> 
you give this episode on a scale of one to ten? Again, I wish I could split it up. It was good, most of it. I'm going to rate it on the pipe part and not. The soap opera stuff. And not the soap opera so stuff. I'm yeah. give it a nine. I agree. The so, Pike stuff you know, was a definitely a, a, a ten. And the soap opera stuff drops it down to an eight for me. Next episode is called Such Sweet Sorrow, which is a reference to the line from Romeo and Juliet, parting is such sweet sorrow. And we all know how that story turned out. Yeah, we do know how that story turned out. <laughs> so I can't imagine. Yeah, it, it doesn't sound like it's going to turn out well. How many episodes are in this season? I don't know. I think at least 14. We're on like episode 12, I think. Things are going to start to heat up, I think. Exactly. And I wonder who the Sweet Sorrow parting is going to be with. Is it going to be parting with the Discovery? The Discovery survive. You know, we've always talked about those shorts at the beginning. And one of those shorts had the Discovery having been abandoned by its crew and left for a thousand years. Was it possible it was abandoned and didn't blow up? And if it didn't blow up, did the knowledge that the sphere downloaded actually enable it to become sentient? Or was that control, the AI, that finally developed a conscience? Interesting. So anything else we should talk about? I think so. All right. Well, we invite our listeners to join us next time when we talk about the episode Such Sweet Sorrow. You can continue exploring the universe with Moms Going Boldly by following us on Facebook at facebook.com slash momsgoingboldly and on Twitter, at Moms Going Boldly. The music used on Moms Going Boldly is Without Limits by Ross Bugden Music. On Twitter, at Ross Bugden. Licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license, creativecommons.org. Transfer complete.